Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Josh Hammer Show. So the world continues to be absolutely crazy. The one-month anniversary of the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th has just happened. We're going to get back to the situation in Israel and skyrocketing anti-Semitism. We're going to get back to that. But speaking of what is happening here on the home front, there was an important election this past Tuesday. And there were elections in Ohio, Kentucky, Virginia, and some smaller state legislative elections all throughout the country. This was a bad night. It was a bad night for conservatives. It was a bad night for Republicans at large. It's worth unpacking what went wrong and what we on the right can do to fix it. The most devastating result of the evening to me was the massive loss for the pro-life side and the massive pro-abortion victory in the increasingly red state of Ohio. This was issue one. Issue one reestablished a state constitutional right to abortion up until the time of viability, but there are lots and lots of ways to get around that up until the moment of birth under the so-called mental health rule. So issue one passed by a shockingly wide margin, 57 to, to 43 or so, give or take, very similar margin to a procedural vote on this that happened earlier in August. Here is the upshot. The upshot is that Ohio, which was once one of the nation's swingiest states, determined presidential elections, but in recent years has been a bright red state. Mike DeWine won a massive gubernatorial re-election victory there last November. Ohio increasingly seems as red as it gets. And yet here we are, less than a year and a half after the demise of Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision, and a full-on Roe-esque constitutional right to abortion is winning in Ohio. The same way that it has prevailed in virtually every other state that has directly voted on this at the ballot box since the Dobbs decision, Michigan, Kansas, and so forth. Now, it's true that it's not all terrible for our side, the pro-life side, the side of the inherent moral dignity of all human beings. In the midterms of 2022, you did have some governors who had signed strong pro-life legislation who still won. Kim Reynolds in Iowa, Greg Abbott in Texas, Brian Kemp in Georgia, Mike DeWine, as I mentioned, in Ohio. But when this issue is directly teed up for the voters, as it was in issue one in Ohio, our side is losing. Our side is losing and we're getting massively outspent, outorganized, outmobilized, out everything. That was not the way that this issue was for the entirety of the Roe era. For decades, polling consistently showed that there was a higher percentage of single-issue pro-life voters than pro-abortion voters. Put another way, before Dobbs, when Roe was still the law of the land, as they say, there were more voters who were just going to vote to overturn Roe 
in hopes of enacting pro-life legislation than there were those who wanted to keep Roe for the very simple reason that the Roe proponents were on defense and the anti-Roe pro-lifers were on offense. We were trying to do something. There's a lot here about the power of momentum, of trying to achieve a tangible goal. Our side tried to achieve a tangible goal for 49 years. The cost of that goal and the human and moral tragedy of Roe was tens and tens of millions of unborn babies who did not live. But nonetheless, in the Dobbs decision, we finally won. Their side now has the the momentum. They are now the ones who are on offense. We are the ones who are on defense. And the unfortunate reality is that we just can't keep up with them right now. When it comes to mobilization, when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to the donor class giving to these causes, when it comes to getting our literal voters to the polls, getting them out of bed to actually pull the ballot box. This is a long slog. Those of us who have been involved in this fight for for a long time know that it is a long slog. Abolition of abortion in America is obviously not going to happen in America tomorrow. There are a lot of lessons here from the 19th century anti-slavery movement. You know, Abraham Lincoln, my political hero, he knew that slavery could not be overturned by simply snapping your fingers. He knew That hearts and minds, to use the rhetoric of the pro-life movement, that hearts and minds have to be on your side to a very large extent. Here was Lincoln speaking during his first debate with Senator Stephen Douglas in 1858. He said, quote, with public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Consequently, he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces decisions. He makes statutes and decisions possible or impossible to be executed. There is so much wisdom in this particular quote. Now, yes, it is true that a lawmaker, a governor, a ballot box referendum, you can try to nudge the citizens of your state in a certain direction to an extent. But if the underlying public opinion is not there, then you really have to fix that first. And I worry that, you know, there are some great organizations for sure, for sure. There are some wonderful pro-life organizations, Live Action, Americans United for Life. There are lots of great organizations that are deeply engaged in educating the American people about the gestational period of the unborn child, when the unborn child has brain waves, when it has a spine, when it's sucking on its thumb, and all the above, when it can feel pain. There are lots of great educational organizations out there. But the focus of our efforts right now has to be in that area. Because there is very little consolation when it comes to advancing the pro-life cause if these ballot box referenda are just consistently destroying any possibility of even having political power to begin with. You need to have power in order to wield it in order to effectuate a solid outcome. In order to attain that power, we need to have the voters on our side. So broadly speaking, 
less than a year and a half after the Dobbs decision, after the fall of Roe versus Wade, we are, find ourselves still in the hearts and minds phase of this struggle. That is very frustrating for ardent pro-lifers, including myself. Doubly frustrating, perhaps, for those of us like myself who even feel that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, properly interpreted, would actually encompass unborn persons as persons under the meaning of the clause, thereby logically leading or requiring, I should say, the abolition of abortion in America. It's really frustrating, trust me. But the voters are just not there. And when the voters are not there, we have two options. The first option is you just keep on doing it again. Maybe it'll work this time. The alternative option is to pause, look at what we're doing, conclude that it's not working, unfortunately, and try to change our tactics. Focus on hearts and minds. Focus on small, incremental victories. God willing, we will get to where we need to be. Hammer Show. Issue one in Ohio was hardly the only disappointment of the evening on Tuesday for conservatives for the Republican Party at large. Republicans lost very quickly a very winnable gubernatorial election in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, where Daniel Cameron lost by four to five points to the Democratic incumbent Andy Bashir. Kentucky at the federal level when it comes to voting for president, when it comes to voting for senators like Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul, is a very, very red state. Now, it is true that historically a lot of these states in the south or adjacent to the south, Louisiana, Arkansas, Kentucky, West Virginia come to mind. Some of these states do have an interesting split where they vote Republican at a federal level, Democrat at a state level. That's certainly part of what happened in Kentucky, although they did have a Republican governor, Matt Bevin, in very recent memory there. I think another part of what happened, though, in Kentucky is the fact that Daniel Cameron, the attorney general who was trying to get a promotion to governor, who's only 37 years old, by the way, young guy, he ran as essentially an ultra-MAGA candidate. He ran very, very closely tied to the persona of former President Trump. In his advertising, in his campaign speeches, he presented himself as a hand-picked Trump candidate, as someone who was going to be Trump's guy there in Kentucky. And sure enough, the weekend before the election, Trump himself took the Truth Social to say, oh, how great Daniel Cameron was going to be. Oh, he's going to be this just terrific Trump-adjacent, MAGA-adjacent governor there in Kentucky. The polls had this race very close. But David Wasserman, who is one of my favorite election night follows on social media, he goes district by district and likes to make prognostications. He called this race, I think it was 7.23 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's really early. The turnout in the red counties was not there. 
Republican voters did not show up for Daniel Cameron. This is someone, again, who is the sitting attorney general of Kentucky. He has won statewide elections before. In fact, he actually won nearly 58% of the vote when he won his attorney general race in Kentucky. But he lost pretty badly this time. Again, the final tally, four to five points, not a massive, massive discrepancy, but the polling was really close. He underperformed the polling and it was called really quickly. It's hard not to look at that and to conclude that this is just an extension of many of the themes that we saw in the 2022 midterms where the so-called Trump endorsement is essentially an anti-endorsement. What about what happened in Georgia in the 2022 midterms? Raphael Warnock was a comically, comically easily defeatable incumbent candidate there in Georgia. All you had to do, frankly, was nominate someone with half the baggage of Herschel Walker. And we don't need to relitigate that particular primary, but who did Donald Trump come out in favor of? Oh, he came out in favor, of course, of Herschel Walker, who apparently had paid for abortions despite professing himself to be a Christian and all of this stuff. In Pennsylvania, where they faced a literal brain-dead candidate in John Fetterman, they nominated someone with dual Turkish citizenship who wasn't even, I believe, living in Pennsylvania. I think he was living across the Delaware River in New Jersey, that being the TV doctor, Dr. Mehmet Oz. Another wonderful Trump pick. There are many examples now that the Trump endorsement is the kiss of death in the Republican Party. In fact, I saw someone tweet the other night that if Ron DeSantis really is going to go down, if Trump really wants to see the end of Ron DeSantis' political career, the best thing for Trump to do to ensure the death of DeSantis' political career would be to re-endorse him again. Because you can draw a pretty direct line in most parts of the country from the Trump embrace to a candidate underperforming or outright losing. Now, it's not true literally everywhere. It, to an extent, does depend on the state. Now, in Mississippi on Tuesday night, Tate Reeves, not a particularly popular or even particularly well-known governor, he did win re-election. He presented himself as a very MAGA candidate, even though he probably is not, and didn't seem like it hurt him that badly. So it does depend, to an extent, on where you are running. But the reality is that the MAGA movement, as distinct from national conservatism, as distinct from national populism, simply MAGA on its own terms, Trump qua Trump, Mar-a-Lago qua Mar-a-Lago, the core of the Trumpist movement, again, holding it distinct from any intellectual movement, just the actual man himself, is obviously very unpopular with a very large percentage of the American voters. I can't tell you the number of conversations that I have with voters, with listeners, and maybe they're too afraid to come out and say it publicly, but the amount of folks who say, Josh, I can't believe the fact that our nominee, the Republicans' nominee, is probably going to be someone who is under four separate criminal indictments facing 91 criminal counts. 
They say, Josh, I would really prefer not to vote for someone who might be a convicted felon, no matter what you may think of the actual prosecution, holding aside the legal merits of these particular cases, someone who literally might still be a convicted felon. And oh, by the way, not naming names here, had a very interesting phone call the other day with a very prestigious federal judge who called me to pick my brain in a few things. In this one judge's estimate, Trump is essentially a dead man walking when it comes at least to Georgia and the Washington, D.C. indictments. There's no precedent for this, obviously, by definition. What if the jury in Georgia or Washington, D.C. finds him guilty in the middle of a general election next August, next September or so? A judge can easily, easily put some sort of order into place while the defendant has been found guilty pending appeal to prohibit him or prevent him from various public appearances. You can essentially confine him if you really... It would, it would be excessive judicial conduct in this case, but in theory, a judge could keep that person confined to the home, prevent them from, in this case, if it was Trump, going out and having rallies. You can really do some damage. On the other hand, it is simply true, based on the real clear politics polling average, that Donald Trump is, is in this thing, that if he is a nominee, that he does have a chance, for sure. Joe Biden is really that bad. And there are many Democrats who are looking at their successful night on Tuesday evening and questioning whether the terrible polling that they've seen from Joe Biden actually really is that terrible. Maybe it's a polling mishap because when push comes to shove, when the MAGA brand is on the line and a lot of these states, the voters are repelled. They're, they're fleeing for the other direction. They're going to the other guy. But we probably are going to get that Trump-Biden rematch, unless something changes here, which it could, which it could. Ron Sanders has that Kim Reynolds endorsement, of course, had a strong debate performance in Miami there. Things could change, for sure. I, for one, hope that things change. If you really, truly, earnestly think that Joe Biden is that bad, is that incompetent, and you are trying to secure a victory for the Republican nominee at the ballot box next November. With Daniel Cameron in Kentucky as yet again another data point and a long litany of data points, do you really want to nominate someone who can't pick anyone or endorse anyone to save his life, who is facing 91 criminal counts? I, for one, would rather avoid that. Hammer Show. November 7th was the one month anniversary of one of the darkest days, not just for Israel, but I would say one of the darkest days for Western civilization in a very long time. 1,400 innocents slain, thousands more wounded, hundreds more taken hostage by a genocidal Islamist death cult in subterranean terror tunnels. And the war goes on. 
Now, the IDF has made real gains. I saw someone, a spokesperson of sorts, maybe it was a leak, essentially say that Hamas no longer has operational control of northern Gaza. That currently is under IDF operational control. The fighting in Gaza City itself could take a while. Gaza City is roughly in the northern third of Gaza. It is the main epicenter for Hamas conduct. It is where they store most of their weapons. It is where most of the Gaza-based rulers of Hamas live. I say Gaza-based rulers because that would be in contrast to the actual rulers of Hamas, the bigwigs, the three to five folks who literally run the organization, who don't live anywhere near Gaza. In fact, Israel recently showed some photographs that it had probably from clandestine sources, Mossad assets, folks like that. It had photos of the Mossad heads living it up in their lives of luxury in Doha, Qatar, the capital of Qatar, Qatar being the country that sponsors Hamas, $30 million payments a month. Qatar via its Al Jazeera channel fans the flames of the Muslim Brotherhood and radical Islamism all throughout the region. These photos show the Hamas heads who apparently are worth, by some accounts, billions of dollars. $11 billion, I think, was the number that I saw. You can't make this up. They are living absolute lives of plush luxury in five-star luxury hotels in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, the terror hotbed of Qatar, while Gaza itself is, is being turned to rubble. In any event, the IDF is in Gaza City. A lot of, people, folk, a lot of folks think that that is where a lot of the hostages are currently being held. Because that is where the Hamas leaders inside of Gaza are. That is where most of the weapons are. It might logically follow that that is where some of the hostages are. This is going to start to look a bit like Fallujah to a large extent over the next few weeks there. It's going to be a lot of urban warfare. Now, as this continues, the predictable shrieks of hysteria from all the usual suspects, the far left, the Hamas caucus of the U.S. House, They're all calling for a ceasefire or a quote-unquote humanitarian pause, which are indistinguishable from each other. A humanitarian pause is just a less draconian way of calling for the exact same thing, of calling for a ceasefire. In fact, Israel has actually just agreed to daily four-hour quote-unquote humanitarian pauses, which I think is a terrible idea and a capitulation of sorts from Prime Minister Netanyahu to the reality that the operation probably cannot go on forever without appeasing, to some extent, President Biden and liberal Western powers, but it's the wrong move nonetheless. And it's the wrong move nonetheless for multiple reasons. The first and foremost reason is that you cannot separate Hamas and Gaza. Since Hamas took over Gaza in 2007, following a two-year bloody civil war against Fatah, which is based in Ramallah and the West Bank, Hamas has interspersed its assets all throughout Gaza civilian infrastructure. They store their cakes of weaponry. They store the rockets, the missile launchers, all of it in mosques, schools, United Nations facilities, UNRWA. They are there as part of the most cynical strategy that a group has ever devised in the history of warfare. 
That cynical strategy is to deliberately have as many of its own people killed as possible as human shields so as to gin up faux-manufactured, astroturfed global outrage against its enemy, in this case, Israel. It's horrific stuff. You know, the far left talks about Gaza as being a quote-unquote open-air prison. It's not. Israel unilaterally withdrew from the territory, literally ripping up its own settlements like Gush Katif back in 2005. But if Gaza actually is an open-air prison, it is Hamas that is the one keeping its own citizens in there. As we quite literally saw earlier in the conflict, when Hamas was bombing its own roadways leading to southern Gaza, keeping its own people there, preventing them from getting to the Rafah crossing closer to Egypt. We recently saw Israel operate a quote-unquote humanitarian corridor, allowing Gazans to flee to the southern part of Gaza from the northern part. Who do you think the IDF was protecting those Gazans from in this humanitarian corridor? They were protecting them from Hamas, their own rulers, who would be quick to use snipers and or rocket launchers, RPGs, God knows what, to bomb their own people to keep them there. It's the most disgusting, upside-down stuff imaginable. And of course what Hamas has done since it took over with these monthly Qatari payments, all the other usual NGO activity, US, EU, liberal idiocy, the money flowing into Gaza. They take all of the raw materials and the money, and what do they do? Well, they obviously siphon it off and divert it to their own resources. What do you think, quote-unquote, humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip ends up being used as? That humanitarian aid ends up getting used for weapons, for tunnels. There's been a lot of complaints throughout this conflict of a fuel shortage in Gaza. Who do you think has all the fuel? Hamas. They're still launching indiscriminate rockets left and right into Israel. The sirens are going off all throughout the Gaza envelope, the towns there near the border. That requires fuel. Another part of the situation in Gaza that illustrates the extent to which Hamas and Gaza are inseparable from one another was this massive, massive scoop by a media watchdog company this past week called Honest Reporting, which was essentially established to expose anti-Israel, anti-Western bias in the media. Their scoop shows, and it's pretty convincing, it is a pretty convincing article, and the photos are pretty damning, that freelance photographers contracting with the Associated Press, Reuters, CNN, and the New York Times, were there ready to take photos on the morning of the pogrom on October 7th. Well, isn't it more than a little weird that these independent contractor photographers just happened to be there bright and early on a Saturday morning? Recall the first attacks happened at 6.30 a.m. local time. Shouldn't they have been sleeping? They weren't even wearing press uniforms. They were plainclothes photographers. One of these photographers, we subsequently learn, and you can't even make this up, Hassan Eslaya, who was contracted to both the Associated Press and CNN on October 7th, 
Honest reporting showed a photo of him smiling, taking a selfie while he is being kissed on the cheek by Yaha Sinwar, the mastermind of the October 7th massacre, one of the Hamas leaders operating there inside Gaza. You know, Donald Trump spoke about how the media is the enemy of the people. I don't know if if even he thought that it could be literally true in this kind of a sense. CNN, to their credit, quickly announced that they were severing ties with this contractor. Shouldn't the editors who were supervising these photographers, when they started to see the footage that was coming in, shouldn't they have picked up the phone and alerted the authorities? Call Israel, call the United States, call the European Union, say that a massive, massive 9-11 scale terrorist attack is happening? What does it say about the moral decrepitude of the folks in these media outlets who are actually then transferring independent contractor payments to these photographers who are just doing Hamas's PR dirty work for them? There was literally one video I saw of a quote-unquote photographer, again, not wearing press indication, dressed like a plainclothes guy, holding a grenade. Is this what we're calling photographers now, Associated Press Reuters? Grenades? Are you kidding me? If this is ultimately fully corroborated, and it's pretty freaking damning already, but if it is corroborated to the extent that not just the individuals based in Gaza, but the outlets themselves knew about this attack before it happened and failed to apprise Israel? You are looking at the scandal of the century. You are looking at material aiding and abetting of terrorism in a way that the Trumpian rhetoric of enemy of the people for the media would not even begin to describe None of this, of course, is new for those of us who follow this. If you go back to May 2021, which was the last time that there was a skirmish between Israel and Hamas inside Gaza, there was a tower, the Jala Tower, that was destroyed in an IDF airstrike on May 15, 2021. They were housing in that tower sensitive Hamas weaponry, important assets for Israel to destroy. Among the things destroyed also in that particular strike were some associated press offices. Yes, that's right. The associated press in Gaza was, and presumably perhaps still is, sharing office space with Hamas. And of course it makes sense. You think these journalists based in Gaza are free and independent-minded? No. Hamas is a U.S.-EU-recognized terrorist organization, for God's sake. If you are a journalist based in Gaza, you are effectively controlled by Hamas, which is why you see this idiot kissed by Hamas on the image. The war is not going anywhere anytime soon. Gaza City is going to be the continued epicenter of the conflict for probably the next few weeks, if we had to guess there. There already has been a bit of a rift between Netanyahu and Biden as to how this thing ultimately ends. 
whether it pertains to or what, whether it includes a formal Israeli security reoccupation of Gaza. For present purposes, suffice it to say this. If the pressure from Biden and the international community prevents Israel from finishing the job in Gaza once and for all and eradicating the cancerous Hamas tumor from this mortal coil, it will be a failure. Anything short of that is a failure. Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! Woke psychologists warn against tickling your own children. Researchers say that when some parents initiate the playful behavior sensation, that means tickling, they are doing so because of subconscious sadistic impulses. Dr. Carol Lieberman, a forensic psychiatrist from Beverly Hills, she's been an expert in Child abuse cases recently warned that tickling can interfere with children's concepts of physical boundaries. This is from this from the Daily Mail. This, I think, is a really important insight into the leftist mentality. For over a century now, the left has been focused on undermining parents' commitment to their children, on undermining the most important bond that exists in this realm, which is the bonds that hold together the nuclear family itself. As I am fond of pointing out, the entire concept of no-fault divorce was itself the work of Soviet Bolshevik social theorists. Why? Because it's all about breaking down the family. Look, what children, what child does not have fond memories growing up of things like this, of getting tickled, by their parents or whatever. This is the kind of stuff that parents do to their kids all the time. This impulse to come out and condemn this completely normal behavior, let alone to accuse it of, quote, subconscious sadistic impulses, is coming from a place that wants to undermine the bond between that parent and that child. You know, why does the left constantly bastardize normal human behavior in general? when they frequently celebrate every other abnormality known to mankind. What is wrong with parents acting as parents, loving their children as they love them? Again, this is ultimately not about tickling. It's about separating that connection between parent and child. In this particular case, Dr. Lieberman, the leftist down in California, has simply found one particular means of trying to achieve her ill-begotten end. The University of Wisconsin-Madison's Diversity, Equity, and Educational Achievement Office is set to host a two-day diversity forum next week called, quote, Bridging the Divide, Realizing Belonging While Engaging Difference. Topics to be discussed at the DEI Summit include a, here we go again, Black, Indigenous, People of Color student panel, Mastering Difficult Conversations, a LGBTQI affinity group, Understanding Linguistic Bias and Discrimination, Ableist Issues, the power of inclusion, blah, 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 blah. Guess what's not there? Anti-Semitism. Well, as the case may be, University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is about as far left as a public university in America gets, Madison is an extraordinarily liberal city, and its flagship university there, University of Wisconsin, is a very far-left institution. 
they have had some absolutely horrific anti-Semitism, predictably, over the past month or so. In fact, I saw Dana Lash, my friend, the radio host, tweet out a screenshot from her friend who is the parent of a Jewish student at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and in the screenshotted text message, we see that the student was so intimidated by pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas protesters that they essentially barricaded themselves inside of the Hillel, the Center for Jewish Life on campus, waiting for police to arrive to escort them elsewhere, if I have the details of that correctly. So anti-Semitism is a big problem at the University of Wisconsin. The reason that you are not seeing anti-Semitism addressed at a major DEI summit, and they're instead going down this other intersectional rabbit hole, so-called BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color. The reason for that, it's, it's not an accident. It's not like they just casually omitted Jew hatred from their list. It is structural. It is inherent in the very idea of what DEI is. Barry Weiss, the former New York Times editor and columnist and the founder of the Free Press, Her contribution to this wonderful tablet magazine symposium this past week was all about how DEI is structurally anti-Semitic. How is it structurally anti-Semitic? It's the same way that intersectionality and identity politics, as the left conceives it, is itself anti-Semitic. Because it divides everything in society into tiers of oppression, into the oppressed and to the oppressors. It's classic Marxist taxonomy. Unfortunately, in this Marxist taxonomy, the Jews, ironically, despite being the most oppressed people in the history of the human species, are the oppressors because they have been disproportionately successful in America in particular when it comes to wealth accumulation, reaching powers, the corridors of power in various companies, inside and out of government, all that. So the entire notion of DEI as the left conceives it is anti-Semitic. It's also obviously anti-white. It's also anti-Christian. But it's very anti-Semitic. This is not an accident. DEI everywhere is a disgusting, disgusting, cancerous tumor, a blight on the American university that should be abolished post-haste. The $300 million unraveling of ESG investing on corporate diversity. So ESG stands for, of course, Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing. It's essentially the DEI of investing. So ESG was once the darling of Wall Street. It's witnessing a remarkable slowdown. Assets under management and ESG funds declined from $339 billion in the second quarter to $315 billion by the end of September. Just three years ago, diversity was a significant talking point for executives at many big companies, but the number of S&P 500 companies now mentioning ESG in their first quarter earnings call was actually just 74. That was the lowest number in nearly three years, down from a peak that was more than double that, 156, in Q4 2021. The upshot here is that this is a rare issue that conservatives are actually winning on. The right has, by any measure, been winning when it comes to the correct and righteous pushback against ESG. And the right is winning when it comes to the pushback against ESG for the very simple reason that ESG is totally ludicrous, is totally nonsensical. When you are investing in a company, whether you are a mom and pop investor, whether you are a day trader, whether you are saving up for your 401k or your IRA or your retirement account, what do you want to do with that money? 
You're trying to get a return. You're trying to make it easier to retire or to live off of your retirement. You're trying to make money. Shouldn't it be obvious that any sort of paradigm, analytical lens or metric that would misalign investment from investment returns would be deeply unpopular? Yeah, of course it would. The problem with ESG for years is that the right, first of all, it didn't notice it was happening. We were caught off guard for a while by the extent to which Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, the major index funds were engaging in these sort of shenanigans. And then even once we realized it, we struggled for a while to actually explain it. But that pushback has now been happening at the, at the state level for a while in states like Florida and Texas, forcing their state-level funds, their pension funds, to disinvest from anything remotely smacking of ESG. There are now numerous anti-ESG mutual funds, ETFs, index funds out there. This is all correct. It is a rare issue where the right has actually been winning for a while now. My only hope because again, ESG is simply the investing version of DEI. My only hope is that this tremendous success against ESG will soon translate into the ultimate eradication of the DEI cancer itself in the American University campus and in the American boardroom. 